Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello, my name is Kelly Brownell. I'm the director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University. Our guest for the second of two podcasts is Dr. Jim Krieger, physician and also trained in public health. He's the chief of the Chronic Disease and Injury Prevention Section at Public Health of Seattle and King County in Washington. He's also the clinical professor of medicine and health services and attending physician at the University of Washington. Uh, Known nationally for his creative and innovative leadership in public health, Dr. Krieger has undertaken a number of programs trying to prevent chronic diseases. uh, And of special interest in this podcast is the innovative work he's done on food environments. Welcome, Jim. Hey, Kelly, thanks. I'm very happy to have you here. Um, If I scan the country and think of the people I think are doing most creative work on food environments, you're right at the the top of that list. So let's start talking about some of the things in particular you've you've managed to accomplish in Seattle, you and your colleagues there. And I know one area that you've been especially interested in is healthy food access. Um, Could you explain why you believe that that's an important issue to address? I think when people have healthy foods around them and don't have as many unhealthy foods around them. It just makes it easy to eat well, and it's not a whole lot of willpower and effort that's taken to do that. It's making the healthy choice the easy choice. And so what sort of programs have you undertaken to address that issue? Well, we try to think through systematically where in the course of a day does a child, for example, encounter food, and then think about what each of those places might do to improve the offerings of food. So if you start with very young children, childcare is an example of a place. And so what we've tried to do is work closely both with the childcare providers Um, And since we do on-site inspections for other hygiene and sanitation and communicable disease control, we also include education about how they can prepare healthier meals and keep kids more physically active during the day. At the other end, we also, there are regulations that affect the way child care providers operate. Those are, in our case, passed at the state level. And we weigh in and and advocate for uh, requirements on, for example, serving non-fat or low-fat milk, not serving soda, serving healthier low-fat kind of meals there. And then we think, okay, well, kids moving up the age ladder, do they go to schools? And schools have had a heck of a time trying to provide healthy meals to kids. So we've worked with them closely in helping them find out how they can purchase healthy foods, either local or not local, but um, at, at lower prices. We've worked with them about training how they can cook the food and prepare it so the kids will like it. We've worked with the students to try to help them promote and, and to their peers what the values of being more active and eating healthier foods are. Um, so again, making the food environment a, a healthier place to be. So before we go on and talk about other things you've done in the community, let's talk about child care and school settings. Mm -hmm. Have you found that the people who run these settings or work in these settings are receptive to the sort of issues you're addressing? I think they want to do the best by the kids that they are there to serve, and so they are very receptive. I think the challenge is is for them to understand how to do it, not that they want to do it. Some of the challenges for them are um, financial, and how do they have a cost model that works for them. And so others are skills, and how do we do this and make it work, and how do we increase our capacity to do it. But generally, it's been very receptive. One issue, I'm not sure if you've addressed this in Seattle, but there's some things going around in newspapers recently about school systems that are changing the food and the the students saying that it's yucky and they, the newspaper articles show pictures of trash cans yeah. with the food thrown out and things like that and kids rebelling and saying that they want their chicken nuggets back. What is your What do you think about that? 
Well, you know, I'm just thinking back. We've all, many of us have been parents, and how many times do we have to get our kid to taste something yucky before they would they would like it? Um, and I think the same actual approach is important to think about in schools. It's not just changing the meals themselves. It's marketing, in effect, the meals. And it's making the kids want that stuff. And we know that children are very susceptible to food marketing. We've seen the industry take use that to its advantage. We can apply the same methods. And so we're actually working with our schools in the Seattle School District, for example, to figure out how can they market this stuff and make the kids want to eat it and have less wastage that way. And I think it's too early to tell because this just is happening as of a month ago. But I think that um, bo- both combining forces with the kids to get the word out through peer-to-peer messaging and with the cafeteria staff to get the word out, I think kids will like this stuff. That was one, one, one thing I wanted to ask you about is, are there examples of the kids getting engaged in this process in a constructive way? I think there are. I mean, both um, as participants, and one example, we've done a lot of taste testing in the schools with the kids to see if they like the new recipes. But another interesting group that we've worked with in Seattle is um, a group of students called Feast. And Feast is a group of students who get together once a week and actually cook a a meal together, and they talk about food policy and food issues and how they can work in their communities to make um, food better in their schools or in their um, local governments. Or, or um, And this group has now expanded, so now there's chapters in probably seven high schools, I think, at this point, starting out with just one community center place. And they, they will invite the adults once a month. They'll let us in there. But otherwise, they run it themselves. And um, it's, it's both a learning ground as well as a way to develop youth leadership around these kind of issues. Boy, what a sign of changing times that students would do this on their own. Yeah, and they love it. That's very positive. So you've talked about child care in school settings, but you're also addressing this healthy food access issue in community settings as well. Can you explain some of the things you've done there? Yeah, um, some of the things would have to do with, we work with, for example, the Seattle Parks and Recreation Department, which runs all our community centers. And a couple of years ago, um, with great leadership by the Parks Department director, they have taken all the junk food out of their vending machines. And any of the meals that they serve in after school or summer programs is now healthy foods. Um, Another example is working with the faith community. We've been working, for example, with a group of seven African-American churches. Um, They've probably got between about 9,500 congregants, and they've taken the soda machines that have been there for decades in their churches out. They've replaced them with water fountains. They've changed what they serve as their school picnics, I mean, church picnics and church meals. They have an after-school program, and they've changed what they serve there to make it healthier foods, and they serve only water and milk to the kids now. So, And now they are on a, on a ministry to spread this out to other churches because they've been so happy with the, with the results that they've had with that. Do you think there's a synergy that occurs when you get different community institutions mobilized like this? So you've talked about churches and schools and child care centers. Do these kind of grow on, uh, I mean, feed from one another and to a growing movement? Yeah, I think that's a really good observation because I think that each time one of these institutions makes a change, it gets some notice and people keep hearing about it. So it's not just a one-time deal that they hear about someone doing a healthy food change, but they hear it over and over again from different places. And then I think the other thing is that as people tend to navigate through different sites in their communities and they see these different kinds of institutions or organizations doing the same thing, the message starts to become clearer and clearer that we are changing our community and making it easier to eat healthy foods. One, one issue that gets brought up sometimes in the context of healthy food access is that it get, gets addressed by people who care about obesity prevention. And the concern is, do these things really help address obesity? And, and one could raise the possibility that 
giving people access to healthy foods will increase the consumption of healthy foods but not decrease the consumption of the unhealthy foods and then you wouldn't get any weight loss occurring. What is your response to that concern? I mean, I think that's a real possibility. I think we need more data to know what's going to be happening as these big changes happen over time. But even if um, eating more fruits and vegetables doesn't contribute to weight loss, there are many other health benefits we know, whether it's from preventing cancers, because we know that inadequate fruit and vegetable assumption, for example, is associated with colorectal cancer and other forms of cancers. We know that eating fruit and vegetables can be protective against certain forms of heart disease and even high blood pressure. Um, So I think there are many other health benefits besides just the obesity issue, just like eating unhealthy foods has many other side effects, has deleterious effects in addition to obesity as well. Well, it's very important, I think, to know this information because obesity is the hot topic of the day, but at some point the country's likely to pay attention to other things and the attention to obesity will probably fade and who the heck knows what that's going to be. It could be heart disease or cancer or asthma or who knows what it's going to be. But uh, the fact that healthy food consumption is related to so many disease outcomes, then it's important not to throw that out just because um, it may not help with obesity. That's right. So you you talked about two fundamental parts of the food system here, um, better access to healthy foods, but then also addressing the issue of the high consumption of unhealthy foods. And I know you and your colleagues have tackled that as well. And you began discussing it with the church programs, for example, trying to get rid of the sugared beverages. And I know that you've made a special effort on the sugared beverage front in Seattle. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious to find out what are the array of things you've done in the city, um, but also give us a rationale for why take on that particular category of food. Well, well starting with, with the last Um, question about why that particular category of food. Um, In the pantheon of unhealthy foods, I think um, sugary beverages are right at the top. And partly that's because they contribute as a single type of food item, the largest number of, of unnecessary empty calories to Americans' diets right now. Partly because they are so heavily promoted and so widely consumed that if you had to pick a single item that was making the largest contribution to obesity as an unhealthy food, hands down it would be the sugary drinks. Um, given that recognition, then we've been trying to, to look at multiple ways in which we can reduce consumption of, of, of sugary drinks. And those not only include sodas, which is what people first think of, but also sports drinks and energy drinks. And we're particularly concerned about the sports drinks and the sweetened juice drinks, because that's what a lot of the kids are turning to now. And particularly low-income and minority kids, the, the rates of consumption are very high. And so we want to target in on those, and we've done that in a number of ways. We've been working with many of the, um, with local governments, for example, the city of Seattle, to remove those kind of items or reduce them from the vending machines and public properties. We've been working with um, the um, hospitals in our region. So, for example, just a few weeks ago, our children's hospital, which is a large regional referral center, got rid of sugary drinks on its campus completely. And I think those, those kind of moves do two things. Not only do they make it less... Um, possible to find them and drink them, but they also send the message out from respected institutions in our community, like our children's hospital, that this is not the healthy choice for you. The healthy choice is to be drinking water or to be drinking low-fat dairy products. And so it's a double um, benefit by doing these kind of these kind of policies. So you bringing up the hospitals example <clears throat> reminds me that the of the word procurement that gets used mm-hmm. a lot in this uh, arena. Can you explain what that means and how that might get worked out into the community? So procurement is, a, is a, I guess, a technical term that refers to the purchasing policies of large institutions, whether they're universities or hospitals or school districts or governments. 
And those institutions and sectors buy a lot of food, millions of meals a year, you know, across the country. And if they change what they buy and put healthier items in those meals and don't serve as many less healthy items, that will improve the quality of, of millions of meals for millions of Americans. And so there's a consistent uh, movement, I would call it a movement at this point, where these large institutions are all looking critically at what they're buying and how they can switch their purchasing patterns to healthier items. And that also has a double benefit. Not only does it put healthier food on the table for the meals they serve, but they are big purchasers. And what they purchase, the food industry will supply. Um, because they're a big customer. And so it's a major lever to have the food industry start formulating healthier products. And then not only will those products be available for the institutions, they'll be available for everybody. So if you take a government in government body, like a city or a county, for example, if, if such a, if the, the political figures in that place said, we're not going to be buying product category A because we think it's contributing to bad health, then how many, how many settings and institutions would that trickle down to? I mean, it depends. If you're talking about, let's take a big city like New York, um, that'll trickle down to hospitals. It'll trickle down to child care facilities. It'll trickle down to schools. It will trickle down to after-school programs. It'll trickle down to Meals for Seniors programs. I mean, it'll trickle down to the jails. I mean, many, many places buy food through government sources. So tremendous numbers of people could yes. be a- affected positively by mm-hmm. this if the changes were made. Yeah, and I think governments are really lining up to make these kind of changes now. Well, congratulations for all you've accomplished in Seattle, and I know many people in the country look to the work you do as being at the forefront and tracking what Seattle does as an example of what's likely to happen later in other cities. So I'd like to congratulate you for that, but also end with a following question. Mm-hmm. When you, you look out there at the the world of food and obesity prevention things, do you feel there's reason to be optimistic about the way things are going and where we're headed in the future? You know, I'm a congenital optimist, but I think even trying to put a more objective frame on my optimism, I'm optimistic. I'm seeing more and more receptivity by more and more decision makers and leaders. I'm seeing more and more interest by residents of our communities and friends even, in figuring out what can I do? This is not a healthy life I'm leading now. How can I change things? And I think people are understanding the linkage between many issues, between sustainability, between climate change, between the kind of foods they eat, between the kind of communities they want to be able to raise their children in. And it's all, I think, coming together into a, I think, change in the kind of culture and society that people feel is going to give them good quality of life rather than more things. Well, I'd like to follow up with this question then. Uh, Things that are happening in Seattle and New York and out on the coast might be considered by some to be, you know, just the liberal coasts and, you know, what the heck's happening with the rest of the country. And I know you're involved in some national organizations Mm -hmm. where you interact with with uh, people who might be your peers, but in other cities around the country. You see signs of this happening in the heartland and in the south and other places? Yes, I do. I mean, I see everything from things happening um, in Mississippi to things happening in Ohio and, and east and west of those points. I think that there's a growing awareness that this is not a sustainable way to live one's life if one wants to be healthy and, and, and have children live longer than their parents rather than as we're afraid to see less long than, their, than the current generation. Good. Well, I appreciate your optimism and congratulations again for what you've accomplished. Thank you for joining okay. us. Okay. Thanks, Kelly, for having me.
So our guest was Dr. Jim Krieger, Chief of the Chronic Disease and Injury Prevention Section at the Public Health Seattle King County and also Clinical Professor of Medicine and Health Sciences and Attending Physician at the University of Washington. Please visit our website, www.yalerudcenter.org. You'll find a variety of resources on food and food policy issues, um, an email newsletter that gets dispatched every other week at no cost, of course, and a list of the other excellent podcasts that we have recorded with guests to the Rudd Center. Thank you.